If you will, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm going to be reading only from the last part of this chapter, but then we'll come back through a part of the chapter together. John chapter 8. We're going to look starting in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we look at this account that your, that your Holy Spirit has superintended through your apostle John to record about the life and teaching of your son Jesus, we, we pray that as we look at this that your spirit would turn on the lights for us, that we would see and know the truth about your son, that we would understand what it is he is saying here, that the full impact of this incredible statement, this incredible self-identification that Jesus points at himself, Father, that, that we would be clear as to what that is, and it would cause in us a desire to worship and repent and rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year during Advent season, every year during Advent season, we celebrate the first coming of Christ, and we celebrate that coming as we look forward to his second coming. Jesus has cast, we celebrate him because Jesus cast a long shadow over human history ever since he was born in the small town of Bethlehem to an insignificant Jewish girl 2,000 years ago. And we all recognize this, even unbelievers recognize this. What many don't know, and maybe even many Christians don't know, is that Jesus' shadow isn't only cast over the history of man after his birth, but Jesus' shadow is cast over the history of man before his birth. In fact, the whole of Old Testament history is a story of God at work to bring about this child, Jesus, whom we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus is the climax of human history. God has created all things and sustains all things as a theater for the glory of his Son, And he is such, he is the glorious son who is the climax of all history because of who he is. So the question is, who is he? Who is Jesus and what difference does he make? And to answer those questions, we've been looking at the I am statements in the Gospel of John. And we've been looking at the Old Testament background of those I am statements. And tonight, if you haven't been a part of our series, that's okay, you can go back and listen, but tonight's sermon stands alone. Tonight as we look, we are going to look at what may be the odd man out among the I am statements. 
In other words, it's one of the I am statements that scholars don't often point to. Sometimes they'll say, well, there are seven I am statements, and, and there are many scholars who agree that there's this one, which is the eighth. But it's the odd man out because of all of the I am statements predicate something about Jesus. For example, in John 6, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, I am the resurrection, the life. And you go to John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You go to John chapter 15, I am the true vine. But here, all we have is this one statement where Jesus simply says, before Abraham was, I am. And the fact that Jesus simply says, I am, is what makes this I am statement perhaps the most exalted of them all. To understand this statement, though, we have to understand what precipitates this declaration and why Abraham brought it up here, why Abraham is brought up here at all. So look with me back at John chapter 8, verse 31. I want to just walk through this passage and see why Abraham is even brought up and why Jesus makes this statement. We want to look at the context so we understand his point. So Jesus said, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, now notice that they are these Jews who believed in him, that's who he's talking to here, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does Jesus say to those who profess to believe? He says, my disciples are those who remain in my word. My disciples are those who know the truth and thus have been set free from slavery to sin. In other words, on the opposite side of that, my disciples are not those who prop me up as a hero for the cause that suits them. My disciples are not those who keep some of my word some of the time. My disciples are not those who flock to me at their own convenience. My disciples are those who know they're enslaved to sin apart from me and that I am the truth that sets them free. They know that. But these crowds who profess faith in Jesus immediately object to his teaching. Look at verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, how is it that you say, you will become free. See, these people follow Jesus around and they profess to believe in Jesus. However, as you will see from verse 33 and following, they are not those who abide in Jesus' word. They're not true believers. When the message is something they don't like, here's how they act. They reject Jesus. They reject his message. They're not like the they, excuse me. They are like the crowds in John chapter six. Remember, if we remember the crowds there, John had, they had flocked to Jesus because Jesus had been just feeding them bread and fish miraculously. They flocked to him. He begins to teach them about the fact that he is the bread of life. That you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he explained to them that, in other words, he is the one who sustains them. He is the one who gives life. They must look to him and him alone. And as he says that. Verse 60 of chapter 6, this is said, many of his disciples heard it. Notice that, again, his disciples, many of them heard it, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
See, these are the people who follow Jesus around at a popular level. They like what they hear from him and see from him for the most part. But occasionally, Jesus begins to pull out these hard teachings. And as he does, they go, well, who can put up with this? And they go on in verse 66, and John, it says this, After this, many of his disciples, not, not the apostles, but many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, that's how these crowds are in John 8 as well. They're believers as long as Jesus says and does what they like. But the moment he crosses the line, they're done with him. See, they have a Jesus who's carved after their own image, right? A Jesus that performs to my expectations, but the moment he moves outside of the box that I have acceptable for that Jesus, he's gone, I'm done with him. And that happens in John 6. And in verse 66, Jesus says this to the 12, do you want to go away as well? See, I've said something difficult. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, the crowds that Jesus is dealing with here in John 8 are nothing like the 12. Well, really, 11 of the 12, you know that. So let's look at the specific objection that, because it brings us to our main text today, the specific objection they give in verse 33 is this. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been a slave to anyone. Why is that their objection? Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they say, what do you mean set us free? We've never been slave to anyone. We're offspring of Abraham. Why do they bring that up? What do they mean by the fact that they're offspring of Abraham? This word literally means the seed of Abraham, or in a sense, the sons of Abraham, and it's an appeal to the Old Testament promises that God has made to Abraham. So look with me at that promise. Keep your hand in John 8 and look at Genesis chapter 12. I'm only going to have one time to turn to Genesis this, this afternoon, and I wish I could turn there a whole bunch because this sermon is so grounded there, this text, but I'm only going to spend a little bit of time there. If you know the story of Genesis, and I'm going to try to give this to you briefly, if you know the story of Genesis, you, you know that God created all things. He created man to live with him in holiness and in joy for his glory, and man fell into sin. Man disobeyed him. We rebelled against him, and we fell into sin. And so when we fell into sin, God came and cursed us. We were tempted by the serpent, and he cursed the serpent, and he cursed us. And when he gives these curses, he gives five different curses, but in the midst of those curses, he also gives a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says that he will put enmity between the seed of the woman, that's Eve, and the seed of the serpent, that's Satan, or and the serpent, seed of the woman and the serpent, and you will, cru- he will, you will bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. That's what he tells him. He's going to crush you, Satan. You're going to bruise him in the process. Eve then thinks that Cain is this seed, this son that's coming. And she names him in line with that. And as you go through the story, we quickly find out that Cain is not that promised Messiah. He kills his own brother, Abel. So then Seth comes, and you think, well, maybe it's Seth. And then we see this intermarrying that happens in Genesis chapter 6 between the sons of Seth, it seems, and the sons of Cain, or the ungodly line of Cain, and then all hell breaks loose literally in the, in the kingdom, and then God brings the flood and makes a covenant with Noah. 
And as he brings them out, then Noah comes out and he begins to repopulate the earth. And as he does so, the people begin to come prideful again and they try to build the Tower of Babel. And God ceases them in that and splits them up among the nations. And we begin to wonder at that point in Genesis 11, how is this seed, this seed is going to crush the head of Satan, how's he ever going to come? Through whom will he come? He's coming from the seed of the woman, but, but where and how will he come? And then suddenly we come to Genesis chapter 12 as God picks out this man Abraham, or Abram at this time, and he elects this man and his family, and he comes to him and he makes this promise, and we begin to see this promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 begin to unfold specifically through Abraham and his family. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So somehow the blessing of all the families of the earth is coming through Abraham. This Messiah is coming through his seed somehow. And what's interesting here is in this passage we have five blessings which seem to be stacked up against the five curses in Genesis 3. Pointing to the fact that it's through Abraham and his family that the curse will be reversed. And then in Genesis 15, which I'm not going to have you turn to, and Genesis 17, God begins to cement that promise even more by making a covenant with Abraham and with his seed or his offspring forever. And he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the Jews in Jesus' day know of this promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And they know that Jesus knows of this promise to Abraham and to his offspring, his seed. So how can Jesus say that they're enslaved? See, Jesus, how can you say that? You know the promise God made to us, the covenant he solemnly swore with Abraham and with his seed, and we're that seed. So how can you say we're enslaved to anyone? In other words, they're making an appeal to their ethnic heritage, aren't they? And the covenant that they think wrongly was made with them as an ethnic group. And they don't understand that this covenant was made to the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh, as Paul lays out in Romans chapter 9. Being a Jew by birth wasn't enough to have Abraham as your father. You had to be a Jew by rebirth. But they didn't quite understand that. So they appeal, we're Jews by birth, Abraham's our father. You know the covenant, you've heard the promise, how can you say we're enslaved to anyone? And look at Jesus' reply in John 8, verse 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone. Jews, Gentiles, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And guess who commits sin? Everyone. So who is a slave to sin? Everyone. Except for Jesus. The slave, verse 35, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do, and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, I wish I had time to unwind all this, but let me just try to boil it down simply. Jesus' answer is simple. You may be physical offspring of Abraham, but you practice sin, and thus you were slaves to sin. God never promised Abraham that all his physical children, without exception, would be saved from sin. The true true children of Abraham are not those who are merely physical descendants, but those who believe in the promise that God has made. And the promise God made, now catch this, the promise God made to them is standing right in front of them and they're rejecting him. The true, Jesus is saying, listen, he's saying this, I am the true son of God and I am the one who frees you from slavery to sin, but you don't believe in me and don't listen to my words, thus you are slaves and your father, your father is not my father. Look at John 8, 39 through 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abram, Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Hear that? You're not Abraham's children. You're the children of somebody else. You're not doing what Abraham did. Abraham believed in me as Jesus is going to go on. That's the works he did. He trusted in me. He rejoiced in my day. And you're not doing those works. You're rejecting me. You seek to kill me. You hate me. You're of your father. And your father and my father are different. And Abraham certainly isn't your father. In the truest sense. Now look at their response to this. They said to him, second part of verse 41... They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Another way to say this is, is they're essentially objecting to Jesus with two biting undertones to what they're saying. You're saying that Abraham's not our father? We're not the illegitimate children here, Jesus. You hear the, you hear the criticism? We're at Christmas time. We're talking about a boy, a little infant, who was born of a virgin. These men know that claim. And what do they say? We're not the illegitimate children here, Jesus. And they're taking a shot at him, aren't they? We have one father, even God. In other words, you're saying, we're not the illegitimate children here, and your teaching sounds like the nonsense that the Samaritans who, of the Samaritans who accuse us of being illegitimate children. That's what it sounds like. Our father is God. Then Jesus responds with what has to be one of probably the least pluralistic and most closed-minded, narrow statements in all of Scripture. You ready? You want to go to someone for pluralism, this is not the man. You want to go to someone who's closed-minded and narrow and dogmatic, here you go. John eight forty two. look at what he says. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. See, Jesus never entertains this idea that there are numerous ways to God, does he? Never entertains it. Jesus clearly clearly and unambiguously declares that if you're not looking to him, if you don't love him, if you aren't believing his words, your father is not God, your father is the devil. Let, let me throw that out there to all those who believe Jesus is just another option for getting to God. Or that he ever believed he was anything like that. To all those who believe in the universal fatherhood of God and fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. Here's what Jesus says. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. There isn't a third option. If you believe in Jesus and his words and love Jesus, you're a child of God. If you do not believe in Jesus and his words and you don't love him, in other words, if you have another faith or none at all, you're a child of the devil. There is no third option. In spite of how this garbage is passed around today, everyone doesn't go to a better place when they die. Everyone doesn't. We say that all the time. It isn't true. Everyone does not go to a better place when they die. Some go to a much, much worse place. If you are remaining in Christ and his word, you're a child of God and you go at your death to be with your father. If you are not remaining in Christ in his word, you're a child of the devil, and you go at your death to be with your father as well. If everyone goes to a better place at death, then Jesus and the gospel is a useless joke. And as a side note, just, just as a side, because I hear this all the time lately, no one, no one becomes an angel when they die. Hear that? No one. Stupid. It's just nonsense. But listen, those are seriously dogmatic, intolerant, narrow comments, aren't they? In fact, those kind of comments don't just sound crazy to our culture. They sounded crazy to the people in Jesus' culture as well. You say, man, I cannot believe that you just come right out and say things like that. Well, Jesus did. Well, I can't believe Jesus did it. Didn't he smooth out the edges at all? Didn't he make it nice and palatable for everybody? Well, listen, if he did, he wouldn't have gotten killed. They didn't kill him because he smoothed everything out. He said it straight, like it or not. 
And it wasn't just crazy. It doesn't just sound crazy to us. It sounded crazy to his culture as well. Look, look at how they respond to this in verse 48 through 53. Listen to this. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? There's a response for you, huh? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There, there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And he's talking about eternal life here. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. See how outrageous is that, Jesus? You're claiming to be better than Abraham and the prophets. Are you greater, verse 53, than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Listen to that final question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now they offered this question as a kind of insult to Jesus. We're going to insult you. Who do you make yourself out to be anyway? You're claiming crazy things. And while they meant it as an insult to Jesus, it's exactly the right question, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Who does he make himself out to be? How can he say that he is the true son of God, that he is the one who makes people free, that he is without sin, that he speaks the words of God, that he is the one who keeps people from eternal death and gives them eternal life? How can he claim those things about himself? Look at John 8, 4, 54. Look at what he says, 54 through 56. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus goes ad hominem on these guys, by the way. And after he does, he makes this incredible statement, your father, rejoiced, your father Abraham rejoiced he'd see my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice where Jesus has taken us. He's brought us full circle back to their argument regarding Abraham, and he makes this amazing statement. You think you're children of Abraham? Well, if you were children of Abraham, you would believe in me like Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced that he'd see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does Jesus mean? How could Abraham have seen his day? He does not mean that, G, that he, Jesus does not mean that he was walking around the earth during the lifetime of Abraham. He means that Abraham looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Abraham saw the promise of Jesus in the promises and covenants that God made with him. Abraham saw the promises of Jesus 
of the promise of Jesus in the ram in the thicket, whom the Lord provided as a sacrifice in the place of his son Isaac. Abraham looked forward to Jesus' coming. He believed in Jesus prior to his coming, and he rejoiced in him. Now look at what they say in, in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you were not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? It's as if they're asking, how could that possibly be? You're too young to have known him, and you're too young for him to have seen your day. To which Jesus answers with this stunning statement in verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice Jesus doesn't answer before Abraham was, I was. He pulls out this very familiar statement to the Jews. I am. Before Abraham was, ego me. That's the Greek for I am. And that is used in the Septuagint. If you're not familiar with the Septuagint, it is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that came about before Jesus' birth. Through which, from which the disciples often quote. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, when Abraham... Or excuse me, when Moses in Exodus 3 is at the burning bush and he says to God at the burning bush, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them, egoi me, I am. That's my name. See, Jesus is saying something to them that they would have understood. He's saying, I'm the one who was in the burning bush. The one who redeemed you from Egypt. That's me. I'm the one to whom Abraham looked. I am the redeemer. I'm the eternal one of Isaiah 41 and 43, who has created all things and who sustains all things and who alone can save and no one can stay my hand. I am the Lord. As Bruce Milne, a scholar, writes in his commentary on John, he is the eternal Christ sharing the everlasting life of the Father, the changeless Lord who towers over history, master of time, ruler of the ages, undiminished by the passing of centuries, the same today, yesterday, and forever. This is why you can't be children of the promise to Abraham if you don't believe in him. Because he is the promise to Abraham. He is the seed in whom the promise is made and kept. He is the one who made the promise, and he is the one who keeps the promise. That's why he can make the claim that if you don't believe in him, you aren't children of his father. He's the only one who has the right to make that claim. This is why he's the only one who can free you from slavery to sin. He's the only Lord and Savior. There is no other. That's what he's claiming. And it is because of who Jesus is that we celebrate Christmas every year as a church. To sum up what Jesus is claiming, he's claiming what was said of him when Mary and Joseph were told of this coming son and they said that you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the question is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Are you abiding in him and his words? 
Are you trusting that he alone can save you from your sin? He alone can free you from slavery to your sin. He alone can pay the penalty due you for your sin. Are you trusting in him? Or are you like those in verse 31, who in verse 31 are professing faith, but by verse 59 it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. So they start off as those who are called disciples, professing faith, and by the time Jesus is done telling them, I want you to know, I'm not just a guy who does miracles for you, I'm not just a guy who has very wise things to say, I'm not just a guy who you can arrange your life around to make it nice for you, I am. I'm the Lord of history, and you have no hope apart from me. Once he gets there, they're picking up stones to kill him. And you might say, well, I don't want to throw stones at him. That's fine. You don't live in a culture that, that reacts to teaching that we reject in that way, do we? We, we, don't, we don't get worked up about anything anybody says, it seems. Unless the guy has a long beard and does a television show. See... We live in a culture in which when we hear teaching we don't like, we ignore it, we give a collective yawn, and we pretend like it isn't so. And many in our culture, I want you to hear this, many of our, in our culture, and maybe some here, stone Jesus to death through redefining him and remaking him into our own image. We have our own personal Jesus. But let's be clear, only the Jesus who is the seed of Abraham, the true son, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord of history and savior of the world, the great I am, he is the only one who can set you free from your sin and give you eternal life. And that's who the Jesus is whose first coming we remember every year at Christmas. And he makes all the difference in the world because he is. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that we would be a people who look to your son Jesus, who believe his own account about himself, who believe the testimony of scripture about him, his promise coming and his fulfillment. Pray that as we walk into this Christmas Eve and Christmas morning tomorrow with our families and friends, we pray, Father, that we would not lose sight of your son who came, the great I am, Emmanuel, God with us, that we would rejoice in him, that we would know that he has set us free from sins because he alone could do it, and that we would worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.